Ahoy! It's your boy. Today is Sunday, October 1st, uh, and thanks for tuning in for another installment of this personal journal. Um, it's hard to believe that it's the first of the month already. Um, time is just... I think the, the image I always go back to is I say, my life feels like the pages of the calendar just falling off the wall. And uh, I think part of that was from a song I wrote years ago, but I, I don't know. The lyric's not coming to me right away. But the point is, is that time is going by very fast. And, um, you know, you're probably like me where you mark the time, uh, if you're renting, you mark the time based on when you have to pay your rent. And uh, I was a little incredulous when I woke up this morning that I had a reminder to pay my rent and I'm sitting there in bed sending the rent to my landlord through my phone just thinking gosh, I can't believe that this is happening again already. And I think part of what makes that harder is if you've been listening to these installments, you know that I stepped away from my job a couple of weeks ago. And I, actually two things, I guess. I had a random text from my former supervisor yesterday just letting me know that they were thinking of me. And uh, it's nice to be remembered. So uh, it's nice that I'm still, you know, people are keeping me in mind, even though life kind of goes on without you. But the other thing is I... You know, I had a friend ask me recently, you know, how has it been not working? And although it's been nice in some ways, I'm glad to have the stress of work off. Uh, yeah, there's something about that lack of structure, which has made things a little bit more difficult. You know, I like to think of myself as an independent person and kind of self-motivated. But whether it's just getting older or maybe just being more honest with myself, I realize that I really need structure in my life. And, uh, you know... I guess not that I completely go to shit, but I guess I reflect on like when I'm in school, I want nothing more than to be out of school. But as soon as I'm out of school, after about a week or so, it's like I'm desperate for the structure again, you know? You know, I enjoy watching movies and kind of, you know, having the time off and, you know, going to bed when I want and waking up when I want, and that's all well and good for about a week. But then, you know, I'm always looking forward to the structure of school. Now, the minute I go back, I'm sort of, dying to get out again but that's just kind of the perpetual maybe that's just the the uh the malcontent inside me whatever it is i just want to be doing something else um but i was talking about rent oh i think i was talking about this idea of um yeah i guess it's sort of i, I was i was thinking about this time uh, a few years ago before i returned to school uh maybe slightly before that but basically when i wasn't i had no other work other than just doing music and although I was making enough money to pay my bills from um, uh, the money that I was getting from streaming, which is actually pretty rare, uh, I had some personal money that I was using to underwrite my time in the recording studio. And that was fine for a time. But even as things were going better than they had ever gone before in terms of music, I would like be lying awake at night sometimes at like two or three in the morning. I would just find myself awake and staring at the ceiling taken over by this feeling of dread, thinking I was like, you know, doing little more than just taking piles of money and just like setting them on fire. And that although things were going okay today, you know, when the bottom inevitably dropped out and I was forced to do something else, I would look back on this time period where I had taken this money that I had in reserves and, you know, uh, wasted on music that I, you know, could have, you know, I would regret not having it when I needed it. Now, that's a little bit doom and gloom. I mean, here I am in a situation where years later I've returned to school and I'm very lucky that that in my last semester, you know, as things have wound down for me at work, I'm able to step away and just kind of focus on my studies. But there was something about waking up this morning and having to pay my rent where I was just, again, feeling like, oh man, maybe I'll live to regret this. I'm just putting piles of, you know, I'm just making piles of my money that I have saved up and I'm just setting it on fire and especially, especially not knowing what the future's, what the future holds in terms of going to Taiwan and what that period will be like and what will follow from that. I'm back in this place a little bit where I feel like, well, I may live to regret this. Although I'm stepping away from work now, um, I may look up, you know, in a period where, I don't know, maybe it will be harder to find work even after having a degree. And I'll regret you know, sort of, I don't know, using this money when I had it while I was still in school when I might have needed it for for later as well. So, yeah, I'm not sure what to make of that except to say that uh, a little bit of my kind of doom and gloom mentality is kind of returning. 
I think part of it, though, is I think I'm also... Well, I guess the worst of it is over. But I guess, you know, one thing that ends when I stepped away from work is I don't have my uh, health and dental insurance. So I had to kind of go to the marketplace here in California and sort of pick that up myself. So that's an additional expense that I'm having to take on. Um, but yeah, just something about navigating that bureaucracy of, you know, shopping for your personal health insurance and one being woefully disappointed about what's available and how much it's going to cost and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, it really makes you feel grateful sometimes when you have a job that takes care of that for you, especially if you have a relatively benevolent employer who's actually going to, uh, spring for the, the good care plan. Cause I think my coverage of my care has actually decreased now that I'm kind of doing it myself. Um, but I think some of this is coming up at kind of a weird time, which is, um, I'm not sure if I talked about this, but I had this unexpected dental cleaning, which was, I guess, originally supposed to happen shortly after I returned from Taiwan. They had to cancel on me for some reason, or maybe I think my, I think my school schedule, which I didn't have when I made the appointment initially now made it not possible for me to go. So we needed to reschedule. And that was sent for like, I think in November was, I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to get my teeth cleaned till November. Thankfully, they called me up randomly and said, hey, we have an appointment today if you want to come. And I said, phenomenal. And while that's great, I was also a little mm, not looking forward to it just because one thing I've been living with for the last couple of years is I have all of my wisdom teeth, which need to get pulled. And every time I go, well, one, because they're in the back of my mouth, I just, they have, I haven't like taken great care of them. So they have cavities and they're just, yeah, they're basically just like sitting in my mouth and need to get pulled. But every time I go, the dentist reminds me, hey, when are we going to get that taken care of? And every single time for like the last like four or five times since I've gone to this dentist, I've said, oh, I'll take care of it today. I'll, I'll go home and I'll take that referral that you gave me and I'll schedule that uh, appointment to be seen by the dental surgeon or whatever. And I never do it. And I guess this is one of those scenarios where I regret not taking care of it because now I have to take care of my own dental insurance, um, you know, and I'm, and yeah, so basically I'm just not really sure what that's going to look like, but I have the appointment coming up to finally see the dental surgeon. But, um, I guess I'm also just wondering one, when am I going to get the time to do this since I'm in school and most of my time is accounted for? Because as I hear it, when you get your wisdom teeth pulled, you know, it takes at least a week, sometimes up to two weeks to recover. And I need all four done. So my guess is that they, or at least what I've heard from other people, is they can't do all four at the same time. That's just not possible, the recovery time. It's just it's just too big of an impediment to someone's life to do all four at the same time. So one, the only time I'll be able to do this conceivably is when I'm done with school. And does anyone really get this procedure? Does anyone get two pullings done back to back? Meaning... Do I pull two teeth, recover after two weeks, and then, you know, maybe even, even if I wait some time, get the other two pulled in relative, relatively short order, or or what? I mean, my other concern is, and this is actually getting a little strange, I wasn't expecting going this way, but it's that's what we do here. We just sort of follow our thoughts where they go. But another concern I have is they're going to have to anesthetize me when they pull my teeth. And I think, well, how am I really going to navigate that? Because, you know, I live out here in the Bay Area, and... Mm, you know, I don't really have anyone here to support me. Um, meaning, you know, sometimes people have like friends or things that they can call on. Well, <laughs> this sounds kind of sad to say, but I don't have a lot of friends out here. And I'm not really sure who I would, would reach out to. If I needed someone to come pick me up, basically, if I needed someone to like take me to my appointment and they wouldn't be able to discharge me of my own recognizance, if they basically had to send me home with someone, I have no idea who I would call to do that. I just don't have anyone locally who I think can, I mean, conceivably may not be the right word. Conceivably, there's always someone to reach out to, but I mean, realistically, who could I reach out to and ask to do something like that? I'm just not sure who that would be. What it's reminding me of is years and years ago, when I first moved out to the Bay Area, I guess this was like, I gosh, I, I can't do the math right now. I think I always say 16 years at this point, but you know, um, if you've been a longtime listener to this personal record, uh, we talked about this, but I basically had like a huge kind of, you know, emotional breakdown is one way to put it, but it was really all the anxiety and really unaddressed trauma that I had sort of lived with for most of my life kind of came to the fore. 
and I was having all this social anxiety, and I was having all this gastrointestinal trouble. And one of the ways when I finally tried to deal with this was to go see a gastroenterologist. And this is before I realized that actually this is all, uh, this is basically all just a trauma response. This is, you know, what I needed was therapy. But I thought, you know, maybe something biologically was wrong with me. I saw a gastroenterologist. I was only about 22 at the time, but I got a colonoscopy, which for a young person was a very in, in, intrusive, <laughs> for lack of a better word, uh, was kind of an embarrassing procedure to get. But um, the reason I'm thinking about it in terms of getting my wisdom teeth pulled is because, uh, you know, I think I forget what they call the anesthesia, but it's that kind of twilight gas that they give you that where you're not fully out, but you kind of go into that twilight space. Um, you know, and you're just, yeah, you just, you don't have your wits about you. So they basically tell you when you, when you get that procedure done, you can't, one, you certainly can't drive yourself to the appointment. They will not release you if you're driving yourself, but they also, for liability reasons, cannot release you to uh, like a rental car service or something. Like you can't call an Uber or a Lyft. They need to like release you into the care of like an adult and not just like a stranger who drives for a Lyft or something like that. But it makes me think, oh, and at that time, I relied on the partner of a friend of mine who was living in the area at the time. And that was a very generous thing for them to do. And I was very grateful to have that. But when I look at my circumstances now, if I go to get my wisdom teeth pulled and I need to be released into the care of somebody else, I just don't, don't know who that would be. I think, if I remember correctly, I think my brother also has to get this procedure done. I don't know. I don't know if he's, hmm, I'd have to think about it. I can't imagine that he has had any of his wisdom teeth pulled but I think he and his wife one time offered for me to come out and have the procedure done, which actually might be an opportunity. So I don't know. I'll have to pick up that conversation with them. But at least me and my brother, if we did get it done together, we could be two puffy-cheeked uh, chipmunks recovering together, hopefully drinking a lot of milkshakes. Anyway, I have to admit, when I sit down, I wasn't I uh, sat down to record this. I wasn't really sure what I was going to be talking about. Um, I'm kind of coming up on midterms for school. And stressing out is probably not the right word as much as, you know, last week I had, I had this Confucius class, which I really, really enjoy. But I had a midterm that I had to sit for on Tuesday for that class. And then we had a paper that was due Thursday night at midnight. So a fair amount of work for that class, but that's okay. I like engaging with those materials. The thing I'm not looking forward to necessarily is I have a midterm in this history class I'm taking, which is, I think the, the name of the class is Encounters and Conquest of the Indigenous Americas or something like that. So it's basically from the contact of Columbus through, uh, what is it? What came after that? The conquest of Mexico or something like that. And then I think the third uh, segment is something in Canada, which I'm not quite sure about. But right now we're really focused on uh, the first contact with Columbus in, in, in Hispaniola, um, which is uh, very interesting. I was sort of talking to a friend that, uh, you know, obviously the tide on Columbus has turned in this country over the last 20 years or so. When I was a kid, you know, it was in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And it was this very kind of cut and paste story about Columbus uh, finding America and sort of, you know, I don't know, kind of moving here is essentially how it was portrayed. And obviously the, the story about what that uh, uh, conquest, what that colonization, what that subjugation was actually like the horrors of that. Uh, I mean, basically, you know, uh, every street and building named after Columbus is getting changed. And I assume nationally now Columbus Day Concurrent, the concurrent holiday with Columbus Day, I think, is Indigenous Peoples Day, as I think what gets celebrated around that time. But the point is, is now we know how horrible uh, the founding was and the atrocities that took place. But when you actually take a class and you read about it, you realize, oh, it's actually a thousand times worse than anything you could have imagined. You know, we have, I mean, unfortunately, the only records we have of this encounter are from the Spanish perspective. So on the one hand, you might be inclined to deduce that they tried to portray themselves in a positive light. And, the, and so therefore, um, maybe we don't even have a record for all the atrocities that happened. And that's probably true to some extent. 
Uh, conversely, you're also surprised at how much of the horrible things that they did, they actually documented themselves. Um, it makes you think, one, did were they just, was their moral compass at the time just so radically different that they didn't even register the things that they were doing as atrocities? On some level, it had to be true. Because, of the, no, I mean, no person in their right mind would document these things if they saw them as anything but, you know, I don't know, maybe good evangelism or good conquest or military actions or something like that it's hard to really know how to think about them but the one that was like incredibly horrific is from christopher columbus's own journal where he talks about i think he was like gifted an indigenous woman as like a servant and of course he sees her as like a sexual object but she is rejecting his advances and he basically articulates that how at first she resisted me but when i beat her to a bloody pulp with my belt she became very compliant and you're just like oh my gosh like who writes that and then the other story is uh you know mm, it's hard to, to to go from that and in another breath to talk about to say good things about columbus but at the end of the day it's just objectively true he was a great navigator and i don't know maritime technician for lack of a better word and and obviously very brave when you read this whole story you just think I can barely make it to the bank before it closes, let alone be the type of person who petitions not one, but many, uh, the government of many nations to underwrite my uh, desire to board ships and sail off into the unknown and find lands that no one has ever seen, but I am presuming to exist based on the highly unlikely records of an equally ignorant people uh, documented in some dusty library somewhere. So, you know, that's a type of bravery and a courage of a sort that I certainly don't possess. Of course, it's also the kind of grand illusions that lead people to do horrible things. But the point is, is that, you know, as horrible as he was, you know, in certain lights uh, and it, through a highly curatorial process, we could probably also locate things inside Christopher Columbus, which uh, are not mm, all reprehensible. I'll put it that way. That's my very uh, political and diplomatic way of putting it. But the point is, the point that the point that arises from that is what it is. Um, I was saying <laughs> something about a good thing about Columbus. Um, what was I saying? He did horrible things. Oh, I think I was going on to say another anecdote that I remember is uh, for all the things that he was relatively capable at, he was a horrible governor. Not only was he horrible, his entire family, his brothers, were also very horrible. And I think the story goes is, at some point, basically, word got back to Spain that, uh, yeah, things are just not really taking off the way they should because Columbus and his brothers and, and other people are just not able to take care of things. So I think they, I think Spain first sent a guy named Bobadilla or something like that. I can't remember. But he was replaced by, I think it was a guy named Avando or something like that. You could You could look this up on Wikipedia. But the point is is the most atrocious story from that is, I think it's Avando. He's basically a no-nonsense guy, and he's willing to do whatever it takes uh, to make sure that Spain accomplishes what they want in the new world. So the, the indigenous people in Hispaniola were collectively called the Tainos, and although they weren't really like a cohesive, entirely cohesive social order and government, that's basically how modern people think and talk about these indigenous people as the Tainos. And I think what's observably true is that, you know, they had these kind of spheres of sovereignty. You know, they had villages and then maybe collective towns. And then they had these sort of regional leaders and these sort of apex political authorities were called caciques. And as Avando gets there, he realizes, oh, if I can just like kill all the political leaders on the island, then the people who answer to these regional caciques will sort of be much easier to subjugate. So interestingly, although they, although the Tainos are largely like patriarchal societies, um, they're matrilineal, they're matrilocal, and there's also some female caciques. And so he approaches one of the female caciques, I forget her name, I believe it starts with an A, but the point is, is that he basically says, hey, uh, things have not been going well, obviously you're unhappy, and you know, we're not happy with the nature of our relationship to date. So why don't we have a huge meeting and see if we can't come to some type of resolution? So he asks this female cacique to gather um, some of the regional apex political leaders in a single place. And they all gather in a thatch hut. 
And Navanda locks the door and sets it on fire and basically kills all of them. And then he takes this woman, sets her aside. He sort of isolates her to make an example out of her and he hangs her in front of everybody. And you just think, wow. I mean, anecdotally, you hear about bad things, but you just think, I mean, obviously, if that person operated today, they would be tried and executed as a war criminal. But this was just like the order of the day. And for some reason, and I feel like we've talked about it, you know, in this journal before, but I was reminded of this quote from Apocalypse Now, where, you know, Colonel Kurtz has this kind of, I don't know what, a fragmented monologue that's sort of, I don't know, woven through the last 20 minutes of the movie or whatever. But at one point he talks about, you know, although he was fighting for the U.S. government, the real the, the moment he realized that he wouldn't be able to defeat the the Vietnamese and the Cambodian armies is when I guess they had like attacked a local village, and after the U.S. soldiers had left, I don't know if it was the Vietnamese or the Cambodians came in and just killed all of their own people. And when Colonel Kurt saw that, he realized that they were going to lose the war because here was a people who were willing to do something that they just weren't willing to do. They were willing to do whatever it took to be victorious or something like that. And so even though Avando was, uh, you know, it's hard to say he was exponentially more horrible than Columbus because I don't really know how you evaluate those things. But at the very least, he was the type of person who was willing to do whatever it took to accomplish, you know, the mission of the Spanish crown in the New World. And uh, yeah, so anyway, not that I have to write about that uh, for my midterm, but that's just kind of what's floating through my mind, I guess. I don't know. Sometimes I'm a little disturbed by what we talk about here, but so be it. This is where these are these are where the thoughts go, and so that's what we'll talk about. But I think this was just a long-winded way of saying midterms are upon me, and um, I'm having to kind of prepare for this history midterm, which is not too difficult actually. I think that the the teachers actually his lectures are very very engaging, and uh, I think he's a very fair educator. And I'll probably contrast this with my, with my political science class. But the teacher is, you know, I don't know, maybe as someone who's considering, maybe at some point I'll have to teach in my future or I might want to teach uh, as someone who's, and, and as someone who's, you know, to be fair, done a lot of training and, and thought about how to pedagogically present a body of information to people so that they're able to absorb it and execute it in a very practical way. I've given it some thought, but I think it's very commendable that the teacher not only has every single one of their lectures prepared, this is obviously a class they've taught over many semesters, but at the beginning of each le- lecture, they present you with a list of keywords that they are basically like the tent poles of the lecture that you know you should take note of and pay special attention to when they come up. Because the slides are not narrative, you basically have to sit there, and you know the notes that you get from the class are the notes that you write for yourself. So you have to be a very engaged listener. But at the very least, you're given the structure of the lecture that's going to unfold. And so when you hear certain words jump out you know that uh, it's imperative for you to at least tune in for that portion and write down something meaningful, something that you can look back to, you know, to study from. Um, and then when it comes time for the test, uh, it's broken into, into kind of two parts. One is a keyword section where you'll be presented with X number of keywords that you just have to provide a short explanation of. And I think, and I, I'm really a fan of this too, I think you're presented with 10 and you get to choose any seven. So in that sense, it seems... One, you can kind of over-prepare, but also you have some leeway when it comes time to take the test to choose the, you know, kind of play to your own strengths, I suppose. And then the other part is you have these two essays that you have to write in class. But here's the really cool part, is they're not thrown on you in the class. You're presented with four prompts before the test, and you're told that three of them, a random selection of three will appear on the test. And when it comes time, when it comes time to take the test, you get to choose any two. And so I think if I've done the math correctly, that means although you are presented with four prompts, if you prepare three of them, no matter what appears on the test, you'll be guaranteed to have prepared sufficiently. If you prepare three, you will be able to do the test no matter what. I'm not sure if I'm wording that cor- that correctly or if you understand what I'm saying, but I think if we did the math together, I think that would make sense. But this to me seems like a very fair way to lead a class. And I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but I'm recalling a moment where uh, when I was formerly doing a lot of music and I was working with my longtime collaborator, 
Gowan Matthews. This is something I come back to to kind of uh, kind of uh, uh, diminish my accomplishments recently. But we were we he sort of brought up this topic of grade inflation, which I have to admit I don't know a lot about. But at least from Gowan's confidence and what I hear from some uh, conservative critics of the current university education system is grade inflation is a real thing where, you know, for someone like myself who gets very good grades, I was going to say straight A's, although I have one B plus in Mandarin. But the point is, is that for someone who has very good grades, it's actually not, you know, having straight A's, A's today is not what having straight A's in the 70s meant. And so sometimes when I see this approach to teaching like I have, although I'm a huge fan of it, I also wonder sometimes if it isn't just because, you know, do I only like this because it makes my life a little bit easier? Or is it just kind of a a fair way to conduct a class that, you know, you can be reasonably confident that 90% of the people taking this class actually don't have it, aren't invested in the subject of the class itself. They're only taking it because it fulfills a requirement they have to meet for their major. And so are you kind of, one, doing people a favor or, you know, giving them an advantage by kind of letting them know how to prepare and listen. Is that helping them? Or are you kind of making things easier for them? I happen to think that it's probably a better way to teach, just you're sort of guiding people through the process. So, you know, you're just kind of tipping them off to what's important and what you want them to take away from things. It's, I guess what I'm saying is it's not about the minutiae or the bits of information that may come up and may or may not be important. And people can just kind of, you know, I don't know, play guesswork when it comes time, when it comes time for the exam, or are you better off just like letting people know what's important up front and making sure that they dial into those things? Because I guess, I guess what I'm really saying is at the end of the day, I don't care what class you take, even if it's a class that you really, really love, you're just not going to be able to absorb and take away everything that is important during this, uh, over the course of a semester. So, if you just kind of index and highlight and under, underscore what you think is important, or if you distill, you know, although you will be presenting a huge body of knowledge to a student, if you really just kind of, one, and I think this is important, and I don't, I don't know that enough teachers do this, is really decide for yourself what you think is important. Meaning if I had to distill this lecture or, or, uh, or this course rather down to a couple key essential points, if the students got nothing out of this class but these points, what are the things that I would want a student taking this class to to, um, to take out of this course. And usually, you know, it's not things like names and dates, although some of those are certainly important. But it's, it's I guess what I'm saying, it's not going to be the minutia. It's going to be the macro, the broader concepts that are addressed. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I tend to enjoy that. Whereas, you know, I've had the alternative as well, and I'm having a little bit of that in political science currently, the, the examples that always kind of stick out in my mind, though, is when I was at junior college and I had chemistry. Two semesters of chemistry that I didn't need, but it was very important to me. Well, I mean, only later did I realize I didn't need them. I didn't take them electively. I took them thinking I needed them. It turned out I didn't need them, which was disappointing. But even as I was taking these semesters, you know, it was very important to me that I got a good grade. But I happened to have teachers who were not very helpful. Their approach to teaching was kind of like, you know, I'm just going to lecture at you, or here's the textbook, you're going to read it, I'm going to lecture, I'm just going to reiterate what's in the textbook, and the onus is really going to be on you to learn the material. And maybe some of my mm, approval of that has kind of shifted just, you know, in my own college experience and kind of thinking about what I enjoy, which isn't always the benchmark for how things should be done, but just as I sort of dial into that. But one thing I know many years ago I discussed in this uh, personal journal was I admit that I was actually a little judgmental of my classmates who were, I don't know, very critical of that approach, or at least the word that comes to mind is fairness. So rather than go on this diatribe about chemistry, maybe I'll just talk about how this is relevant today which is I'm currently taking a political science class, which obviously the teacher is very, very, very knowledgeable, very, 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 very smart and clearly passionate about the topic. But one of the things that they don't seem to have, and I think part of it is because this lecture is conducted asynchronously, the way I understand it, they live with a compromised immune system. And so, yeah, one of the ways that they, the way that they conduct lecture is, asynchronously although we have to be present for lecture meaning they're not recorded as far as i as far as i know um 
May, so maybe there is a little bit of disconnect between us and the teacher in that sense, because we're, we're we are physically separated from each other. But they also don't seem to be really dialed into this mm, component that I sort of recognize in my other history teacher, which is, you know, they lecture at length, they go in depth, they clearly know about a lot, we cover a lot of ground very quickly. And I guess it became clear to me that maybe things weren't as, you know, well-prepared as my history class when we had this quiz and we were sort of told ahead of time, don't worry, quiz is going to be very easy uh, as long as you've been paying attention in lecture and like doing the readings, this is just going to be, you know, testing to make sure you're doing the bare minimum. And I was like, okay, well, I've been to every lecture, I've done all the readings, I've taken good notes, so... You know, I'll look at these materials before the quiz, but I won't need to do a great deal of preparation. So we all show up for the quiz, and uh, it was very, very difficult. Uh, we only had five minutes to complete it. It was five questions, and I ended up getting one out of five correct. And at least when I looked at the information, I thought most of the questions were incredibly granular, asking about specifics about certain people and dates. And the questions were also these types that were very nuanced, which is you actually had to think very critically about how the question was answered, because maybe your intuitive response would be defensible in one sense. But if you actually look closely at how the question is worded, they're actually asking for something different. So this, this, is, this is the point I'm sort of coming to, which is, although I was disappointed one of the things I don't like about doing this asynchronous lecture is that people just kind of talk in the chat that accompanies the virtual lecture all the time, which I find very distracting. I mean, I've since learned how to turn notifications for that off. But yeah, I just don't like in this sort of remote world that we're doing. I just don't like the fact that there's simultaneous whether it's a, uh, whether it's at work or at school, there's always this sort of meta commentary that's happening on, a, on a, unfolding and happening alongside events, which I think can be very distracting. But people, and there's like maybe 250 people in this class or something like that, they're just pouring into the chat talking about how unfair, this is the word I'm coming to, how unfair the quiz was. And I think that's the word that I sort of come back to, which is when I was taking chemistry with two very difficult teachers, I just kept hearing from other people about how unfair it was that the teacher was teaching this way. And I don't know if it's a good thing. I mean, it might be kind of utilitarian, but I don't have that response at all. It's not that I'm not disappointed. It's not that I don't wish the teacher taught a different way. It's not even that I don't think, you know, another way of teaching might be better for the teacher and for us. But unfair doesn't even sort of factor into it because at the end of the day, I know the teacher can test on whatever they want. They can go as deep or as nuanced into the text or the lecture materials as they wish. I mean, unfair would be if they asked you questions that you didn't have access to the answer, you know. Um, but if it came up in lecture, if it is in the textbook that you were asked to read, they can technically ask whatever they want. So it doesn't really come down to fairness for me. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is on one level, you know, I feel like sometimes I... I guess I just feel weird. One, I don't know if it's a generational thing because obviously the people in my class are usually much younger than I am. But I, on the one hand, I feel judgmental when I hear a bunch of my peers talking about how unfair something is because I think these people don't know what they're talking about. You know, it, like it, it seems like it's, it's a type of entitlement, you know. But how do I square the criticism of my colleagues with what I also feel, which is you know, this is probably not the, I mean, it's certainly one way to teach and you're, you know, an instructor is certainly entitled to do it. But if there's a better way to do it, and if this approach has very, has a very real impact on my GPA, which, you know, essentially, if you sort of project that out, can have, you know, real consequences on the opportunities that someone has access to in the future, how upset should I be about this approach to teaching? You know, but I guess what I'm trying to say is, and this is a very circuitous way to get back to grade inflation, which is, it could have been the case where we lived in a in a sort of educational climate where most teachers were like my current political science teacher is, or my former chemistry teachers are, which is it was just kind of here's the textbook. I'm I know this information, and I'm just going to lecture at you, and you know you're just going to be responsible for learning the information 
the way I did. And sometimes I think, and you could probably extrapolate this out to a lot of different disciplines, but maybe one of the, sorry, I have to get some wawa here. For some reason, this is taking me back to music, but I'll see if I can sort of finish this thought, which is, I think these approaches to teaching, you could probably apply them to business and, and management as well, but the reason they perpetuate is because you have a teacher who grew up under that very system, and one of the ways they distinguished themselves from their their peers, their colleagues, was they actually did the hard work, right? So if my chemistry teacher had a chemistry teacher who basically just said, here's your textbook and I'll lecture at you, you know, and there was a lot of responsibility on that individual to learn the information themselves. If they did that, it's going to be very hard for them to face a classroom full of students who are saying, oh, this is unfair, this is impossible, when that's exactly what that person did. You know, you can't tell somebody it's impossible when they did the exact same thing themselves. Now, of course, you know, I guess baked into that is the idea that they wanted to have a, excuse me, they wanted to have a career in chemistry. But I guess when, I guess the only point I'm really trying to make here is that these things kind of perpetuate themselves. If someone sort of comes through a certain system, it just makes sense that they would, you know, when they're in a position to be a teacher, they're just going to teach the way that they were taught, right? This is basically you know, I don't know, uh, intergenerational trauma, right? Uh, this is how things sort of perpetuate this way. There's not really big insights here. But one thing that's coming to mind for me is music. Um, I remember one time being in touch with uh, a relatively successful musician who, uh, you know, I had come into contact with and, you know, was kind of, had sort of come up through the ranks of the music community that I myself was just kind of moving up through. And there was this opportunity where we had, uh, I was very lucky to be in a position where this person could do me a favor. And although this person, very public facing, was was very critical of the music industry and how things were operating and was, how do I say it, kind of ascribed to the type of self-presentation, the climate of self-presentation that happens in the public today, which is you know, people are responding to the difficult times, whether it's political, economic, or whatever, they're just kind of per perpetually positive. And they talk about making a change and kind of, uh, you know, changing the status quo and that kind of stuff. I was very surprised when I had to, you know, when I had to engage with this person sort of professionally and private, uh, not through them directly, but through their representatives, I was kind of asked to do some work that when they asked me what how to evaluate my own self and my own time, what I asked for is they eventually offered me much less than that. And, you know, this goes into a whole other topic about how people evaluate their time and, and that sort of stuff. But uh, I said, I, I said, yes, I'll do this for the nominal amount that you're offering me. But at the end of the day, it wasn't enough for me to uh, sort of pay my way, meaning I really had to rely on some other sources of income uh, that were uncertain uh, while I was doing this thing. I'm, I'm trying to talk about this very euphemistically because I don't want people to be able to pin it down to anyone. But the point is, is that I was basically asked to do the type of work that you need to do to move forward in the industry for very little pay. And it wasn't free. I mean, I was compensated something for my time, but it wasn't enough. And as I was sort of going through this experience, you know, I'm not critical of this person because at the end of the day, I could certainly have said no, right? But some of my pay became this ephemeral thing that a lot of people are critical of, which is like experience or exposure. Interesting that they're both E's. But the point is, is that I remember there was this huge wave in the music industry or in the music community um, for people who are very critical of like not getting paid for their time, right? There was this big kind of consciousness raising moment where a lot of musicians were on social media were kind of espousing this idea like, hey, I need to get paid for my time. You know, they were sick of being approached by event leaders or coordinators or people doing music at uh, farmer's markets or weddings or I don't know what people were doing. But, you know, they basically wouldn't offer musicians money for their time. And they would say, well, we're not going to pay you, but it would be great exposure or it would be great experience. Um, and so a lot of people were critical of that. And at the time, and this is probably just my contrarian streak, actually, I'll be specific. I think the inciting, one of the exciting, inciting incidents or maybe, the, yeah, one of the inciting incidents was Amanda Palmer, a DIY musician uh, who kind of presented themselves as kind of being, 
you know, I don't know, kind of an advocate for musicians' rights, or I don't know how you would word it necessarily, but people were very surprised to find that Emmanuel Palmer was going on tour and ostensibly couldn't afford to bring a brass section on the road with them, which I think was a pivotal part of the music they were making at that time, or maybe featured heavily on the record that they had just released or something like like that. But the point is, is that they couldn't afford to take a brass band on the road, but what they did was, I don't know if it was a competition, but they basically put the call out to their community saying if they had people who wanted to volunteer in each city that this person was going to play in to play in their brass section, they would have auditions or some type of competition or something like that. Now, the criticism came is because these were not paid positions. This was sort of presented to people as, I don't know, maybe just like a cool opportunity. I don't think the I don't think it was pitched as like experience or exposure. I think it was just like, hey, you like my music, right? But do you also happen to pay the, the trumpet or the euphonium or the trombone or something like that? Well, you get to play on stage with me. And there was this, this huge outpouring of people who absolutely hated this, who thought this was hypocritical, who thought this was exploitative. And I think I even remember talking about this in therapy one time, and I, I think my therapist was not a huge fan of my position on this. But at the time, I was saying I, I didn't agree with that. Um, I mean, on the one hand, if Amanda Palmer had like, well, I have two thoughts, and I was thinking about this recently. But on the one hand, Amanda, what Amanda Palmer is saying is, hey, I can't afford to bring a brass section on the road. So one solution is to like do it for free, right? I'll just ask people to do it for free and I'll sort of present it at this competition or whatever. But my thing is that most of the people who, pro yeah, I guess what I'm getting back to is this idea of, well, people at the end of the day can determine, they can say no if they want to, right? So I'm trying to equate this to this position where one, I was presented with an opportunity where I was being underpaid, but I also said yes. So you know, how critical can I be? At the end of the day, it's my right to say no. If I feel someone's not going to pay me enough to do something, you know, I, I can say no, right? So I guess my position with the Amanda Palmer thing was like, if music, if people feel the good time or the experience of being on stage with one of their favorite musicians playing at a venue they may not otherwise have the experience to play at is not sufficient compensation, well, they can stay home. Um, but yeah, a lot of people weren't really thrilled with that perspective i don't think um but where am i going with this um hmm we got this we got we got here through education and difficult teachers mm. yeah i don't really know what to say um although in a freudian sense i'm thinking is it a coincidence that i spent some part of this conversation earlier talking about christopher columbus and exploitation of labor um it's funny, when you have these conversations, you think, you know, you just don't know why you go where you go and how all this stuff is related, but maybe like therapy on some Freudian inter interconnected level, all this stuff is related. On the one hand, I'm talking at length about uh, Spanish colonialism and exploited labor, and lo and behold, we end up in a place where we're talking about uh, musicians kind of leveraging power or, you know, the... the. I guess I'm thinking of like when Columbus first came to the Americas, uh, I forget where it was exactly. I think they were calling the Lucayans or something like that. But the point is, is that people like came out in their boats and like, you know, Columbus was very critical because he said they didn't know the value of certain objects. You know, they would basically, they were trading, you know, uh, uh, you know, gold, basically bricks of gold for like broken belt buckles or something like that. Um, yeah. And it's just sort of interesting. On the one hand, Columbus and other Spanish people were like, oh, they don't know the value of objects. Well, one is how could they, right? Gold just may not have the same currency for them as it has for Spanish people. But it also may be overlooking the fact that like, uh, hey, you're the Spanish and you have a ship. And also they did like demonstrations of power where they would just like fire cannons off and like blow things up to demonstrate to the indigenous people like their military power. It's also like, well, maybe they're just smiling and nodding and accepting your broken belt buckles because they don't want you to turn your cannons on them, you know? And they'll pretend like, oh, this is great. Yeah, I'm happy to make this trade because they're trying to protect their lives. Anyway, what does this have to do with music? Who knows? Maybe the point I'm trying to make is sometimes I don't know. Yeah, maybe this is the summary point to make, which is whether it's a teacher who, you know, I guess I find myself in a minority because I see the whole class going, hey, this isn't fair. Or I see, uh, you know, a lot of people in the music community saying, hey, this is fair. And when my initial response is, hey, that's the way the cracker crumbles, 
I don't know if that is like actually an adapt like a like a well adapted response. Like, hey, that's a realist, and actually someone who adopts that type of mentality is gonna get further along. Meaning, on the one hand, you could ar- argue for the benefits of that approach because one, if your response to a chemistry teacher who you think is unfair is to kind of fold your arms and kind of protest and wait for them to change, well, prepare to be disappointed. Right? And the and the same thing is true of the music industry. I mean, I can't tell you how many peers of mine seem content to just kind of like bemoan the state of Spotify and how little they pay people. And I'm not saying that those aren't valid criticisms, but I think it's also true that if this is what you want to do for a living, you actually, you you know, regardless of what you want for it, you enter the marketplace in the condition that it is in. I'm not trying to discourage anybody from like making the changes that they want to see in the world, but this is the reality of the situation. And if you want to play, you're going to play. If you don't want to play, you can stay home, right? So, Maybe there's like a utilitarian thing to like, hey, I'm just going to do what the teacher wants. Even if I think it's like not my preference or if I think it makes things exponentially harder for me, I'm just going to do it. You know, at the end of the day, I need to be clear about what my objective is. And if my objective is to get an A in the class, well, that just means I just need to rise to the occasion. And that may not be everyone's goal, right? Like people can decide for themselves. If you're, if you're, faced with a very difficult teacher, your goal may not to be to get an A. Like maybe you're totally content getting a C. And so you're like, well, I'll just do that. That's totally fine. I mean, by the way, you know, the classes I'm taking now, as much as I'm talking about history and political science, I don't need to get an A in the class. I'm just shooting for a C. I mean, I'm at the, I have to be honest, I am shooting for an A. But the point is, is that I only need to get a C minus. So if, if conditions don't improve, I don't necessarily need to uh, dig deep and find the resources within myself to rise to the occasion. I can just kind of do good enough, and I think that should be sufficient to help me get by. But the thing I sit with is I go, is my ability to accommodate this actually like, um, you know, like a vestige of like trauma? Does that make sense? Like there's a way in which like when I... When I hear about musicians, or, or here, I'll put it this way. So there's this thing of like when we, the things we don't like about other people actually indicate to us the things that we don't like about ourselves, right? So sometimes I'll find myself in these frustrating conversations uh, and maybe in therapy, but in life in general, which may, maybe it's something like this. So I could be um, talking about, hey, I'm surrounded by all these kids in my class who talk about how unfair something is. And I really hate that aspect of my classmates. I feel really judgmental. I think they're very weak and they're kind of snowflakes or all that sort of thing, whatever direction you want to take that. And a good question that your therapist or somebody can counter with is, well, maybe there's something about them advocating for themselves or, you know, what is the thing that you don't like about that? At the end of the day, they're just saying, hey, this isn't fair. They have a clear sense of how things should be and they're not scared to advocate for that. Why is that necessarily a bad thing? Or you take something like people who... mm, you know, partly like I conceded very rightly protest the amount of money that Spotify pays per stream. Well, what is it about me that the minute I am confronted with that behavior, I feel judgmental? Like, is there really on some level that I'm like embarrassed is a word I always come back to. I feel embarrassed for these people. And I think, well, what, what do they have to be embarrassed about? At the end of the day, they're just advocating for themselves. You know, is there really a part of me on some level, because I'm sort of conditioned to just kind of grin and bear it, you know, is there a way in which I actually feel judgmental of this behavior? Because on some level, what I really want is to advocate for myself or I want someone to advocate for me. Because the other component, which I think I got lost in the shuffle somehow, is how I experience these moments is when I have a teacher who's very difficult, or I mean, this is true for all teachers, but I think it's easier to talk about in relation to a teacher who's very difficult, is one thing I do in life in general is I kind of look to other people to tell me who to be. And especially in power dynamics, that becomes really apparent. So like, for example, when I have this musical opportunity, I just kind of, you know, I may have an idea of how I want things to go, but the minute I sort of set off on this collaboration with another person, I am just hyper attuned, especially because there's this dynamic differential between us, I'm hyper attuned to how they're experiencing me. And I very quickly adjust my presentation and my strategy to sort of accommodate what I'm 
registering as what they need from me. So although I, I go into our interactions trying to kind of ingratiate myself with them and be their friend, the minute I get any pushback or I sense that what they're actually wanting from me is to be someone who's kind of on the periphery, who's just kind of, you know, orbiting around them, but not, not necessarily engaging with them, that's immediately what I fall into. And this is true for like romantic situations in general as well. Like we've talked about dating. I'm in this place now where on the one hand, I'm disappointed because on the one hand, I'm feeling confident in my ability to want to one, just get through dates, but I'm also feeling more confident in who I am. So that means instead of arriving at dates, like looking, you know, for the other person to like me, I'm also going in with my own expectations. So, um, where, what am I saying? I guess I'm saying I'm, I'm, you know, that's, yeah, what am I saying about that? I guess I'm, <laughs> I guess I'm saying, um, something about there's a way in which I approach these teachers too, where my defense of them, I feel like it's also tangentially or orthogonally related to this kind of disposition I have, which is I just sort of look at other people to sort of tell me what they need me to be. And in the case of these like difficult teachers, you know, I see, oh, to get an A in this person's class, uh, which in a way is actually what the A means, right? Like you just sort of be, whatever that teacher needs you to be, like whatever uh, accomplishment in that teacher's eyes is, is what they give the A for, right? You, you're basically presented with a syllabus. Ooh, remember I said I like structure too? I'm sure this is related as well. But the idea that the syllabus is basically like, here's what I need you to do to get an A from me, you know? Although I'm not really thrilled or that system doesn't necessarily make me happy, I actually find that I thrive in those environments, if I'm sort of left to my own devices, that that's very kind of more challenging for me. It's much more, it's much easier and more fulfilling for me to be in an environment, I think, where I'm just sort of, sort of presented with a syllabus of what I need to do or how I need to behave and just kind of, ooh, be, I, oh, basically on, I'm basically like living up to other people's expectations, right? When you're presented with a syllabus, it's like, hey, here are my expectations for the semester. If you live up to them, you get an A. And so whether it's good or bad, I think I deprecate like, what? My, oh, this is it. I deprecate my preference, right? For I say, hey, look, the teacher's very clear because they're in this power dynamic. They've told us what they want from us. So that's what we have to live up to. Oh, I'm such a good subject. <laughs> I'm such a good subordinate subject to teachers because it's like, you just tell me what you want from me and it's exponentially easier for me to deprecate my own desires and my own wishes to just become the person that you ostensibly need me to be for you wow and you can graph that onto kind of growing up I'm, i mean we don't have enough time to get in all the specifics but i'm sure a lot of us can relate to that if we were raised in an environment where we just kind of had to be things for our parents you know it makes sense whether it's a teacher or a boss or a romantic relationship trying to close that gap on that dating comment i made in abandon it makes sense that we would kind of look to other people to kind of tell us who we need to be or that it's easier for us to sort of fall into that, you know. And I'm not saying, I mean, I think it sort of ruled my life in an earlier chapter of my life. I think I'm more aware of it now. And I, I think I was in some way trying to say part of what has made dating a little more frustrating is as I've become more in touch with my own expectations, it's actually harder to find someone. Meaning if you're just looking, you know, to other people to tell you who to be, dating just becomes about getting other people to like you. Um which is not fun, but it might be easier to find someone that way, right? Because there's only only one half of the equation, right, needs to really work out. You just need to make them happy. It has it actually has very little to do with how happy you are. If you're actually in touch with what you want, you've actually made the task twice as difficult because not only do you have to ostensibly make somebody else happy, they have to make you happy, which is twice as hard as just uh, making one person happy, right? Um... Anyway, the more I'm realizing, I'm actually kind of losing my voice as we're doing this. So, <clears throat> anyway, um, so what have we learned? Yeah, who knows? Excuse me, I'm also burping at you. I'm actually just glad I'm not yawning at you. Here it is, the weekend, and uh, you know I've just been doing a ton of homework and reading. I think I mentioned 
last time we connected that I think I'm going to be putting dating on the back burner, which is a proven true. I'm just having to really even thought about it. And I, I told myself going in this week and I was just going to focus on schoolwork. But the other thing that I just can't seem to shake from my life right now, and may, I don't know if it's a condition of getting older, but it really disappoints me is that I actually, I take naps every single day. And it's usually only like 15 to 20 minutes, which is actually like the perfect nap because if you nap for much longer than that, I find it disrupts your sleep. But uh, yeah, just before sitting down to recording this, I was like doing some reading for this Confucius class. I was reading this uh, Chinese philosopher named Mozi, uh, who is uh, not Confucius, but it's still relevant to the to the class. And uh, I always have this thing, whether it's in the library or when, every time I have to do reading for school, and there's just tons of it this semester, I always sit down and right as I start reading, the eyes start to get heavy. And I just think, you know, for someone who likes to read, this is pretty difficult. I can't imagine what this must be like for other students who hate to read or people who have no interest in the... I mean, to be fair, I do have this backlog of reading for political science that's just sort of building and building that I just can't bring myself to look at. I'm sure, well, we'll see. I'm telling myself I'm sure it'll get taken care of eventually, but honestly, who knows? Um, But yeah, I was just thinking... I mean, today was, I was actually talking about this too. It actually comes up a lot in dating. It's like one of the go-tos in my repertoire of small talk, I suppose. But people say like, well, how do you like to spend your weekends? And it's always like, well, you know, with school, the weekend really becomes a time not about relaxing, but getting to all the things that you can't get to during the week, like cleaning, like laundry, like grocery shopping. And I always put that off on Saturday. It would be much easier if I just distributed these things across the weekend, but I never do. Saturday is really the day where I watch the movie or, um, you know, you know, just do, don't do do the things. Even if I do nothing, I certainly don't do laundry or cleaning or those types of things. But that means that if I don't do it Sunday, and believe me, sometimes it don't get done on Sunday either, it means it's not getting done all week. And that's not going to be the end of the world. But it does mean by next weekend... We're on our last pair of underwear. We're on our last pair of socks. We're on our last t-shirts. And uh, yeah, and and uh, that just kind of weighs on me. So today was the day where I had to like get up and do the laundry and do the cleaning. And if I'm really being honest, I should be going to the grocery store, but uh, it's not going to get done. But the other thing that has to get done on Sundays now, because I put it off this late, is recording this. And... You know, as I'm sort of saying this, I'm, I'm not really sure I'm a fan of these types of meta commentaries on whatever this is, but, you know, I sort of started doing it on a, on a whim. And although I, I'm always happy to have done it, I have to admit, I haven't been, you know, greatly motivated to, to do it. Meaning, every time I kind of fire up the mic, I have no idea where we're going to go. And, you know, I don't know if that's, you know, one of the benefits of doing this for me. Meaning I, I had a friend who sort of stumbled on it recently who didn't know that this was happening. And they sort of asked me, they're like, oh, do you have notes before you start? And I say, no, I have no idea what I'm talking about. And they said, well, I, I couldn't do that. And it actually reminded me that I had forgotten that that was one of the motivating factors of doing this, which is, you know, and if you've been if you've been listening to these installments, you know that, you know, there are, at least previously, were periods where I would fall into these super long silences. And that was just part of what we did. Thankfully, it's happening less and less. Although I've now, I'm sure I've cursed myself. And, and the next time I record one of these will be, that's exactly what will happen. But the point is, is that it's the exercise. You know, and like exercise, it's not something that's always great as you're doing it. It's not something you're always motivated to do necessarily. But it's the type of thing that once you sit down to do it, you feel good about it. And even if each individual installment isn't phenomenal, what you do get is after two years or whatever, you have 100 entries or after X number of years, you have 200 or 400. And it's just one of these examples, which sounds intuitive. It's much harder to actually do in your lives. But to just chip away at the thing, and even if it's not something that you're necessarily enjoying every step of, what is fulfilling is to kind of look back and see what you've built by just making a small commitment, a small doable commitment each week, something that you can do. So thankfully, as I'm saying that, I see that we're out of time. But uh, yeah, whether this was good or bad, that's actually not what's important. The important part is that it's done. And, uh, you know, for those of you that keep checking in, I'm grateful for that. 
And uh, I hope there was something in this for you this week. I'll look forward to doing this again next week, I suppose. Until then, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And ciao. For now. <laughs>